0: Good morning, women of yes welcome. I want to thank uh, the institute, I want to thank Colin Deeds um, and uh, our, my colleague uh, Ruth Garstner and uh, Michelle for who have done a great job. And um, it's when they asked me to to come here to, to, to speak to you, what what to talk, I mean, there's so much. Mm-hmm. When we talk about borders, right? Oh, yeah. And I, I'm not a policy person. I don't work on on. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a social scientist. I'm coming from the literary, cultural, educational background, and therefore um, I have a bias. And I think culture is it's it's, it's what I do, what I do best, and I, it's a it's a great way to really, really bring to the classroom uh, a number of things, a number of issues from politics to music representations and, and many other things, and, and so. Uh, what, what I, and then the audience? You know, how, how how much do we know about the border, right? Or how do, how, how much do we claim we know, or we think we, think we know? Especially those of us that were are from Terizos, right? With the border, oh, we know everything. I grew up there. Nobody's gonna tell me anything, you know. I, I know what's happening every day. I this. And so it, it's it's a balancing act in terms of what, what to present to you. And what I decided to do was to to do uh, like an overview of What we're calling border studies in academia, in higher education. We do have at the University of Arizona here in the Department of Spanish-Portuguese a PhD emphasis in border studies, which is really a concentration that brings together an interdisciplinary approach, and yet it's really anchored on Spanish and bilingualism, language and culture, and also intersects with other disciplines across campus. Students are able to teach um, in Spanish, but I'm also able to take classes in many different disciplines. And so, one of the things I do in my classes is is to provide an overview of what what are we talking about when we talk about border studies. And the first one of the first myths is people tend to collapse immigration and borders mm-hmm. as synonyms, and they're not. Right? Are we in agreement that that's those are two different categories? And that's an important uh, clarification to make. Every time we talk about immigration, the times the border, or vice versa. And we have to make sure that those are two distinct um, categories of analysis that have different connotations, different problematic, different issues. And so that, that's the first, the first sort of uh, disclaimer, so to speak. And so I'm going to be like reading and commenting on okay. So the, the first, what I want to do first is provide a panoramic vision of the emergence and growth of border studies. Then uh, some, I want to review some issues, some salient issues related to border representations and explain their links to my work as well as some of the characteristics of the specific vision they provide. And finally, uh, I would like to discuss an example of these uh, 21st century dynamics and I will show and tell. I will do show and tell then. I will show you some video clips, some music, a couple of interviews. And I'll be talking about uh, the Nortec music phenomenon. I don't know if you're familiar with Nortec. Yes? How many people know about Nortec? Wow. That, see, that, that that's, that's good. It's kind of interesting because about it's... Music, <laughs> right. So, so I'm going to use Nortec as an example of... Um, how these tensions in terms of border issues come together and are represented in a variety of ways. The other thing I want to do here is really focus on the Mexican side of the border. And I know you're going to be watching Al otro lado, a video later, so this might help you to get some of the understanding of how some of the dynamics work. What, the other thing I, I, I found in my research is that we're so used to look at the border from our perspective. And we look at the border and then English ends and the border ends. And so when English disappears, that's it. Something else out there. Even scholarly, you look at the bibliographies of researchers, very few words in Spanish are, are quoted or cited. That's, an, that's a problem. People are working also on their side. We need to know what's happening as scholars and as educators. So that's one of my preoccupations as a scholar: what's happening, what, how people are perceiving these phenomena from on their otro lado, right? And so again, this is kind of a an attempt to, to summarize some of the, the work I've done <laughs> over the last five, six years. So eh, back in the 1990s, you know, we have this kind of explosion in this field called border studies. And perhaps this boom of border status was due to the redimensioning of geopolitical space that occurred following the disintegration of the USSR and or because of the structure and approval of NAFTA. You know what NAFTA is by now, right? So the fact is that within this new geopolitical scenario, the notion of border became a sort of semantic deed that was repeated. Border this, border that, the border was everywhere. Border studies quickly found their place in an academic world where the order of the day was comprised of post-colonial studies, post-modern influence, feminism, woman studies, and deconstructionism. Mm-hmm. At the same time, a rethinking of the traditional American concept of border was taking place. It involved a revisioning and reification of the frontier of Frederick Jackson Turner. New research on the West and Southwest flourished. At this point, we're talking about the 1990s. At this point, the idea of border took an evolutionary turn. The border, in the past symbolically related to the southern U.S. border, now became a metonymical term for Mexico, whereas the frontier remained in place as an epistemic icon of the symbolic construction of the essence of America and its manifest destiny. And so there are two distinctions here. And I did an experiment. I, I used to teach at the at Michigan State University, and I asked my students, So tell me what you see when I tell you border, the word border. 80% of the responses were linked to Mexico, one way or another, either visually or... I did the same thing in Mexico City with students about the same age. And it was a complete opposite response. It was a more diverse response. About 50% of the people responded, Tijuana, Nogales, uh, crime, lord things. No one said the U.S. Hmm. And, and so, again, you know, maybe you want to do this with your students. It would be interesting to see, you know. But, and so to me, that really kind of sort of crystallized this kind of dichotomy that we start seeing. The frontier, and it's all american and then the border is something else. margin, right? As long as the 1980s now, Chicano studies, or Mexican-American studies, challenged the hegemony of canonical studies and as a disciplinary field came to stand in opposition to American studies. Uh, Research centers were created to study the Chicano phenomenon and they form an entire generation of men and women whose research and literary efforts focus on this topic. Together with the dissemination of both Spanish and English Chicano literature, acted as a cultural and political counterweight in a time frame where the notion of frontera was still shaping by the Cold War. One might imagine that the idea of border played a central role in Chicano thought and epistemology, and yet a look at current bibliographical evidence shows that in only a few cases did the border actually occupy an important place in the Chicano (laughs) cultural imaginary. And again, we're talking about the 80s. When you talk about Chicano, I'm from LA. I thought that we
1: almost... You know, what do
0: you mean by Chicano? Mexican American.
1: Across the board, anywhere. Because <clears throat> we were told it was right. mostly Los Angeles. So yeah. we only used I'm, it in I'm yeah. I was my parent my heritage is from
2: Mexico. My my uh, her- grandparents were born there. My father was born here, so he's Chicano. But I grew up in the United States, but I'm of Mexican
3: uh-huh. heritage. American so, so Mexican, Mexican the same was so we used
0: all encompassing. Right. And and, and and again, I'm talking about how <coughs> academia embraces Chicano studies in, in general. So we have all centers and curriculum, and so forth. Does that make sense? This is this is the context what I'm talking about. Yeah. I oh. Can I ask a question too? <laughs> this So I can have some water. That that the the, the mm-hmm. frontera was the,
1: our notion of frontera was shaped by the Soviet Union. I'm not. I don't get that
0: connection. <coughs> I get there.
1: Okay. Okay. I'll. <clears throat> what,
0: what, happened, what happens is that, to, to, quick answer, what happens in the Soviet Union is that the, the disintegration of the Soviet Union created mm-hmm. an incentive to study the border relations from oh. a cultural, theoretical, and, and, and academic perspective, and many of these ideas came to the West through you know, the work of linguists such as Mikhail Bakhtin and uh, a and bunch of other people. So I'm talking about, about the uh, intellectual movement that influenced, you know, the 90s, where all of a sudden borders became...
1: Because of borders the Georgia or Azerbaijan, or Azerbaijan or Turkmenistan. Yeah, and
0: it. also I because Berlin, you know, I because we see. have these oh, kind okay. of transcendental borders. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I get it. Now.
0: So, so at that moment, the border became important as a, as a, as a notion to, to deal with. That's kind of my point uh, of departure. Uh, Whereas in the past, I said, uh, let, me, let me move up. Let me move <laughs> this. <Okay>. So, <laughs> so the point here is that, um, as, as Charles Tatum, an uh, important critic, colleague and critic here, has said, you know, uh, only in a few cases did the border actually occupy an important place in the Chicano culture imaginary. That is not to say that border as topic or point of reference has been entirely absent from Chicano writers because authors like Aristeo Brito, Rolando Hinojosa, Elena Maria Viramontes, Ricardo Aguilar, Arturo Islas, and others uh, have indeed employed this concept in their text. But it was not until the late 80s, however, when Gloria Anzaldua published Borderlands mm-hmm. that the idea of border began to displace the idea of Aztlan in the Chicano imaginary. Right. So we, we see a, a, a shift in, term, in, in, in the ideas. in in the concepts. So if in the 60s and 70s, Aslan was this sort of uh, sacred (coughs) genesis of Chicano Chicano history, and so forth, then with Ansaldua the border becomes that. And it's interesting how things shift a little bit. So this book immediately drew the attention of Chicano and non-Chicano critics. Uh, Feminist critics were really, really followed these these readings by Ansaldua entering the canon and becoming a point of reference for Chicano literary production. After that, a number of important works appear, which discuss and problematize the notion of border from multiple perspectives, mainly in a revisionist and celebratory spirit. The readings of these authors, however, concentrated largely on only one side, the north side of the border. A glance at the references consulted in the writing of these studies reveals a vacuum in terms of Spanish language sources, both primary and secondary, Similarly lopsided sided is the list of topics explored. It would seem then that the border status stop precisely where the dividing lines is traced. Or better yet, the border occurred automatically where the English language stopped and the resulting borderization, and I use that as a verb, creates its own object of study. Likewise, we were witnessing the construction of a postmodern vision, and some Utopian and essentialist constructions of, of identities, like, like in her work. We, we, talks about the border crossers, these kind of subjects that can go back and forth. And we always wonder how they do that so easily when real people have so much difficulty really going back and forth, right? So again, this is, this is again, something that we need to look at in terms of some of the terminology that emerges at the time. Yes? This vacuum occurs also that you described of the, 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 the research and the commentary ends when you reach
2: the border. Um,
0: and it's English only. Is it also true that there are no perspectives from the Mexican, Mexican voices? Yes. What, one of the things that is very difficult to believe to many people is the fact that Chicano studies in Mexico is really, really a very precarious field you don't really find uh, a center of Chicano Studies. You don't really have a curriculum built around Chicano Studies, or even a program in a a higher education institution, which is really interesting. There have been efforts through the years to create programs, but there's no systematized, organized program in Mexico. Many of the students, of the Latino and Chicano students, that go sometimes to Mexico to try Spanish, and they are really surprised that there are no courses and where they can read Chicano authors and those programs. And, and there are a number of issues, we can go on and on about that, but that's part of, of, of the reality. For some reason, eh, Chicano studies has never really, really been at the level of, uh, the, it has not had the presence in higher education that it has in the United States and even in Europe, in other countries. I mean, you go to Spain, right now in Spain, last week, there's a huge Chicano literature conference in Toledo, Spain. They do it every two years. And you can go to other places in Italy, and there's this curiosity about what's happening with the Latino Chicano populations in the U.S. Mexico has an uh, interesting relationship with the Chicanos, you know, it's it's complicated, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, to answer the question, yeah, we see things on both sides, mm-hmm. and feel free to ask questions, please. It's just sometimes I throw some terminology here that professors gotta do sometimes. Just kidding. Uh, so, going to NAFTA, the NAFTA negotiations of the 90s changed the role of border in the Mexican and Latin American imaginaries. The 1980s saw the rise of Mexican projects involving both cultural and economic decentralization, which assigned a place of singular importance to regional studies. As a result, Mexican efforts to record a local and critical vision of the border proliferated. Soon, several groups of border thinkers and creators attempted to establish their own places of enunciation, giving rise to historical revisions, study groups, publishing initiatives, and the turning of indirect kind of looks at local spaces. In addition, renegotiation of national and regional canons began with the framework by national and hemispheric dialogues. The Colegio de la Frontera Norte was established with principal sites in two newly consolidated border areas, cultural speaking, Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez. Projects also flourished at all locations. Editorial groups as well as study curriculum groups and groups of writers and poets above in Nogales, San Luis Río Colorado, Mexicali, Laredo, Reynosa, and <coughs> Matamoros. By the end of the 1990s, globalizations had moved to center stage and was study as a kind of a generalized phenomenon which have an impact was impacting the cultural imaginaries. What I mean by cultural imaginaries is these narratives that really permeate society. And right now with social media and internet, we see these manifestations, you know, it's like going to Facebook and and seeing these ideas that float. That's what we're talking about cultural imaginaries. Some of them are based on stereotypes. We built a lot of these cultural imaginaries through stereotypes or repetitions, but they're dominant narratives. That kind of flow in, in, in the way the society looks at several things. At this point then we're, we're looking at, at how the idea of, of, with NAFTA and all these things going on in, in the Americas, now we're looking at a, on a transnational level, not just the border as a as a, way, as a line or as a divide, but a dialogue that supposedly would allow the flow of goods and the flow of capital to benefit the population of North America. And this transnational conversation begins. An interesting essay by uh, Mexican anthropologist Everardo Garduño, titled "The Essay is Border Anthropology: Migration and Transnational Processes," he points to divergent approaches, which assume borders to be either rigid barriers or porous membranes. On the one hand, and on the other hand, literal borders and socioeconomic regions, as opposed to non-literal borders. In other words. Oh, I was going to show you this. That's another thing I, I do with, with my courses. I ask my students, why is the border here? Why is not the border elsewhere, right? <laughs> I'm going to have multiple answers. But what I do, I show them this little map. And what we do, we begin talking about how borders are, are not new. And we, I, I emphasize in historical terms, the role of the Louisiana territory at the border. Back. So what, what we have here is that Garduño discusses how typically uh, we have this idea of border something very rigid, especially in the 19th century. right? And he talks about literal borders and non-literal borders. That is, literal borders are those geopolitical lines that we can maps and traditionally have being designed to protect, guard, and secure the nation, right? I mean, in general terms. Now, literal borders are what he's talking about, like contact zones in which you see a lot of activity, especially in cultural terms. And and, and I think that's an interesting uh, proposal, to look at the border in more than one way, several ways to look at borders. So the traditional view is, what we see in terms of policy, right? In other words, a geographic region where concrete social and economic problems peculiar to the in question find expression. In the case of the Mexican-American border, migration, implications of the global growth of the maquila, industry, and the border policies are adopted by adjacent states, including by national treaties. And we see that all the time, right? Policy everywhere. But there are ways to look at the border, and here we emphasize the, the, the role of culture. If traditionally international border zones have been viewed as areas culturally diluted and marginal to the interests of the nation-state, it is also possible to be these zones as cultural, economic, and socially systemic entities that reproduce ongoing tensions between globalization and the nation-states. As suggested earlier, the transnational can be conceptualized as a series of processes and impacts moving across nations related to migration, trade, manufacturing, demographics, culture, representation, and the environment. The transnational, and and this is a a concept that Garduno embraces as as an analytical lens to look at all these phenomena. Not just looking at one side of the border, but as what transcends borders. And in this case, he pays special attention to how cultural flows that accompany people and capital go back and forth between the United States and Mexico in more ways than one. It's not just a one-way street. People don't just migrate from Oaxaca to New York or to Chicago and they stay there. But there are a number of flows of information, money, letters, correspondence, discourse, memory, communication that keep that transnational process as an ongoing process. And that's what we need to think about in terms of non-literal borders, right? So we're we're, we're detaching from the geographical aspect to think about how people are interacting. There are a number of people that have, uh, speaking of border thinkers, I can give you a list. For instance, French theorist Etienne Balibar proposes that political economic equality, transnationalism as a concept, embraces political economic equality for minorities, access to the politics or to the center of the nation, and they believe in a common humanity over and against the promulgation of a North American Eurocentric universalism. The, The point here is that globalization has created a number of interesting effects. And you probably read about Walmart recently, right? A Walmart in Mexico has got into a bunch of trouble <laughs> for a number of reasons. That's a very interesting example of how globalization from NAFTA and has really acted on particular communities. And wait until we see what's going on here with Walmart, right? I mean, it would be interesting to see some of these dynamics are also replicated at a different level where we are. But again, I, I mentioned this because it's kind of a, people are kind of, aware of what's going on, right, in terms of these, or people did not know that Walmart is really, really one of the major employers in Mexico, which is, is, is a fact. Anyway, just to give you an idea how these processes work in many ways, more ways than one. Now, one of the interesting things, there's a, a work by a sociologist, Pablo Vila, and he's, he has studied how identity works in border regions and how we are in constant negotiation with the other. Who's the other in the border? It's really complicated, right? There's not one other, right? That's an interesting way to think about how this identity issue is is negotiated. Villa did field research in uh, Ciudad Juarez, El Paso, and what he did, he used photographs of particular sites of both El Paso and Juarez, and he conducted interviews, field work, with a number of people from both sides, and they were really, really invested in defining the, 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 what the place was and the relationship to the place. And he talked about poverty, um, stereotypes. He talked about how people perceive El Paso, and people from Paris perceive, um, and vice versa. And it's a very interesting study because what it did, it really demonstrated the complexity of these interactions and the, really the impossibility to say, these are the others. There is no one other, right? There's a, there's a, a, a complexity, a, a number of things. Even if we think about immigrants here in the United States, you have the same situation in Mexico, in a place like Paris, in which probably over half of the people, probably 70% of the population are really immigrants from the South and from other places in Mexico and in Latin America. So you have really a sort of a transient population that is also being uh, discriminated. they're being relegated. There are a number of the same dynamics that we see here happen there at the local level in Ciudad Juarez. So just to to give you an example of that. There are a number of notions that I'm going to move here because we have a lot. But one of the things that is interesting uh, from the Mexican perspective is the the perception of the the northern border of the border in Mexico. The late Mexican writer, Carlos Monsivalles, who passed away two years ago, he used to say that the northern border was probably the most unredeemable of all places in Mexico. And it's very interesting because there is this very centrist vision of Mexico versus the north. There's always been a t- historical tension, you know? And a famous, Jose Vasconcelos, a famous Mexican intellectual, used to say that uh, in the North culture, uh, the, in Mexico culture, begins where the carne asada ends. <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa, right? Culture disappears where, where the carne asada <laughs> begins. <laughs> and it was a very interesting uh, uh, assertion because he was basically saying, you know, the North is, it's a, it's a, it's the barbarians live in the North. You know? There's no culture, there's nothing. It's a no man's land, no, no, there are no pyramids, there are no. And, and that perception really dominated most of the 20th, 20th century cultural vision of Mexico, of the border in Mexico. It's just really interesting. What I try to do here is, is basically look at how, for the the critical difference between El Mexico de adentro, the interior Mexico, and the Mexico de afuera, the exterior Mexico, was not significant since both notions seem to be framed around the, ref, the referent labor, including under the idea of migrancy. And, and there's another interesting, I call, I call him Border thinker, Carlos Vélez Ibáñez, who is a professor at Arizona State University. And he has talked about this thing as a commodity identity in terms of border relations. Vélez conceptualizes this term as a historical and economic consequence of a neocolonial relation between the United States and the Mexican population in the Southwest after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, in particular the industrialization period in the late 19th century. It basically argues that the notion of Mexican identity is tightly connected to the idea of labor, and that is, there is a synonymy created under which the term Mexican is inseparable from the referent labor, in particular cheap labor. In other words, Despite his rhetorical efforts, Montseval's border vision seems intrinsically linked to a dated and rather centralist view of the border as the Mexico de afuera, no? the, the sub Mexico. And what he does for border studies is really, really, it, it really complicates the conversation in terms of what we do here. Because there is no black and white. There's just no clear definition. We need to grapple with the issues and their complexity. Now. So how how was the border being conceptualized from Mexico's critical perspective? According to Mexican critic Eduardo Barrera Herrera, we can create two two groupings. And I have a couple. he talks about traditional and emerging views of the border in Mexico. And, and, and again, we're talking about conversations that emerged after NAFTA, from the 90s, more or less, right? So one of the views is the border is a cultural spacer. There is nothing there. There's no culture. People there are really barbaric. They eat carne asada, they drink tecate, they wear hats,
3: <laughs>
2: they, they speak
0: loud, they, would, they, they have this accent, you know, bronco, ranchero, whatever. <laughs> or they might <laughs> <laughs> Then the borders is a culture, margin. Well, there's some culture, but pobrecitos, no? Poor things, They're just at the age of the nation. They just, they're not really, they're the fronterizos, they're border dwellers. No, I'm not sure they're Mexicans. Doesn't that even come from like way that,
2: centuries ago, when, when people in the north or out there were considered
0: dog-eating people? You know, the, the Again, it's all perspective. You know <laughs> the, the problem is that these views pre- prevail. See? And then the border is a cultural trench. In other words, the most nationalist people are the people living in the Mexican side of the border. They would defend Mexico, they would carry arms to because they don't want to be invaded again. I think the 1940s. So they have this nationalist attitude this. really they refuse to go to, to, to the United States, they refuse to shop in the United States, they're extremely nationalistic. And it becomes part of this trench. Like here. This is the line. We're here, you know, we're true Mexicans, or mm-hmm. But that again, that's that's traditional view. And that changed, of course. Now, what happens? The border became or appears as the paradigm of modernization of post napta Mexico. Again, when we talk about globalization, if we look at the maquila industry, we look at how high-tech industries have really, really, really come, become part of this vision of the border in certain places like Tijuana, Juarez, and Reynosa, for instance. This is something that is part of the discourse. And then... This is a normal. The border appears as site for reaffirmation of national identity. And Tijuana is a very interesting case in, in, in this in this slide. And the other thing is that the border becomes this laboratory for postmodernity. In other words, the coolest, hippest, newest things are coming from the border. Especially a place like Tijuana, that is becoming the city of the future, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that's what NorthTech what I'm gonna talk about later really really is building this idea of modernity, postmodernity, youth culture, cool things, high tech that is here. As you can see, that there are different perspectives, right? It's it's interesting because and and I hope this the what I'm gonna show you about Nortech shows that I think the image is replacing, is becoming the language of communication. Uh, and the place of English is interesting because we, we think, we assume, that the border, uh, as we conceive it in a generalized way, is bilingual, but that's not really the case. I mean, I think it might be more, and we need an empirical study, but I would, my guess, I would guess that the bilingualism is higher on the U.S. side than on the Mexican side, in, our, in terms of functional bilinguals. Now, people know English, you know, the, the English is, is obviously prevalent, but sometimes it's affiliated to the elites, you know. I mean, you don't find English courses in uh, some areas of, of, of elementary schools in Mexico because it, it's kind of a class-related issue there, you know, mm-hmm. and again, if we go to the mall here, we see some of those shades of class and differences between linguistic aspects. I think it's a diff- I, we have we have different issues on this side of the border in terms of, of, of language than on the other side. I think this, this is a different um, the relationship between English and Spanish. But the issue is that it, it, it's really we need to do more more analysis of how it really works in the Mexican side. I think we've done quite a bit in the U.S. and even in Canada. But I don't think the issue bilingual has been fully explored and as as it has been here in the state. No, I I agree. I mean, English English in Mexico, there are bilingual populations. But the the relationship between cultural identity and English and Spanish, I think there's a difference. You don't need to be bilingual to uh, adopt an identity in Mexico. In fact, some people would say, well, my identity is linked to Spanish in some ways. So I, 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 so we need to, to explore that. I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't really comment beyond that at this point because I don't have the, the data. No? I mean, it would be interesting to, for Professor Cashman to apply for a plan. Uh So let me uh, move forward with this. So it is clear, then, that the border has a multiplicity of portrayals that deviate from the two main vision studies here in the US, the geographical border and its socioeconomical effects favoring social sciences, and the border as a metaphor the Privileged Vision in Cultural and Literary Studies. And uh, I did have a discussion about the border in, um, in terms of Mexican-American and Chicano literature. And this notion that all Mexicans are brothers and sisters, there's this brotherhood of uh, <laughs> Latinos and Mexicans, which uh, yeah. it, it has become part of this uh, perceived notion. And, and it's really problematic. We know that there are a number of nuances that we need to look at. So I'm, I'm going to skip that. Um, and this is what Vila did in his study. He he looked at the at the fronterizo population, and, and there the people that you know you have high-class fronterizos. You have light skin blancos. The, the issue of whiteness is also an issue here in the north of Mexico in terms of race race relations. We don't think about. Mexico being a place in which race and ethnic relations have a conversation, but there are issues related to that. Oh, yeah. And so again, you know, it's, uh, we can go on. We can do three of these things. Talk a little bit about representations, right? So the US-Mexico border region has been represented in recent literary culture works as an entity capable of morphing itself into a number of, of, of images, right? As a metaphor of liberation, or as a locus amenus, as a place of happiness for selected ethnic groups, the border has been appropriated and used in academic circles as a feasible vehicle of representation. What remains to be done is to problematize these notions by paying close attention to the ways in which border writers, through their personal narratives, have constructed or deconstructed the border as their narrative um, environment. And perhaps I will go back to somebody like Ambrose Beers who said that, you know, a border is an imaginary line between two nations separating the imaginary rights of one from the imaginary rights of another. You have to take this with a grain of salt. Ambrose Beers had this interesting humor, you know. For my own work, what I try to do here in in my work is to to focus on the border as a site of operation. And I use site of operation as as a concept like locus operandi. In other words, a place or a site in which many different things intersect. Rather than looking at it geographically or geopolitically, this to me is very helpful because I can can look at local situations in particular regions and using this, this framework I can look at what's going on in that particular area. What are the tensions? What are some of the issues that are really shaping these relationships between both sides? And I think that's very important to look at the specificity of what you're looking at in the problem. It's very difficult to generalize such a huge uh, geographical space. But I think it's important to pay attention to what the local conditions, the local populations, the local discourses are telling to each other, how, how they're interacting. So this, this, this uh, side of operation. To me, it's grounded in particular material and spatial coordinates that provide an inclusive reading of local regional context. Methodologically speaking, the use of comparative case studies, and that would be something that would be suggested in terms of bilingualism, could be a good strategy to develop more intense data, data data-driven reading of board studies. Now, let me give you an example and get get into the the issue of music and images. At the the beginning of the 21st century, so the, the Nortec emerged from the, from the border city of Tijuana and through the internet quickly conquered a global audience. So Nortec became marketed as a kind of ethnic electronic dance music, um, a constructed ficti- fictive ethnicity, we can say. And Nortec uses samples and sounds of traditional music from the north of Mexico and transformed them through computer technology used in European and American. ¿Qué es eso? ¿Qué es En
2: ¿Qué 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 que luego un día le, le llamamos Norte y la única manera que puede seguir vigente es que vamos a hacer canciones a retomar eh, las tubas, clarinetes, de jugar un poco con el sonido, un chiste de experimentar. La primera presentación aquí en México, sábado 22 de mayo de 1999, Club Berlin.
3: Inicio la primera fiesta fueron como 30 personas. Vamos a mezclarlo en Norte, a ver si, a ver cómo cómo se escucha en el club. Nos llevamos el material de todos los grupos de Tijuana y de Ensenada. Y cuando empezamos a mezclarlo de norte, la gente siguió bailando
2: Especialmente el norte, la gente se insultó mucho con el sonido Como que se contagiaron Y con la música que Y siento, Escuchaban los sonidos de tuba No sé, nos escuchaban los redobles de banda y todo eso y rápidamente lo hizo como suyo ¿no? y me preguntaban ¿qué era lo que estaban mezclando? hablando ah, sí. como de fuera de tiempo medio marranos así ah, si vamos a escuchar, no es sé, que lo uso escuchar lo que tiene sola pero si la oigo la siento hizo bailar a la gente para si la combino con algo que me gusta mucho
3: la siento más este ritmo es lo que tiene la norteña la banda tiene un grupo muy característico muy contagioso y muy rítmico que simplemente con oír un loop
2: En este, en este rollo te hacen ustedes mover. Los Ángeles fui a ver a, a Fusiles con unos grupos de rock. Otros grupos traían baterista, bajista, guitarrista y a veces traían hasta coristas y fusiles nada más eran Pepe y Melo con sample que era muy aburrido verlos tocando. Ellos básicamente oh, hicieron lo mismo pero a nivel imagen. Salió la idea de mezclar cosas de la cultura norteña, de tambora, elementos de, 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 de música. Y de banda, todo lo que lo rodea ver, ¿de dónde, de, de, los aspectos de la música electrónica, uh, la cultura de Wayne, Flyer, uh, música, música electrónica y la verdad, de los los tecnología. Pensamos que era una muy buena oportunidad trabajar visualmente. Tomar algunos elementos urbanos de Tijuana y procesarlos digitalmente en las computadoras. Tenemos ¿no? colaboración de ellos para videos o cuando tocamos pues ponen las imágenes y posters o gráficos, meter los visuales los tocadas de los eventos y esa era la oportunidad de poder llenar que necesitamos algo visual en una tocada como para poder llenar tu experiencia sensorial automáticamente el mismo contexto de música norteña, música de banda visualmente te lleva a algo, el norteño con con la planta de mota y de villa y todo ese tipo de elementos de cosas de cultura norteña y de la cultura narca y fue como un experimento de sacarlos de una realidad de películas de Mario Almada y hacerlo como algo, como un personaje, algo así. Combinaciones de experimentos con estos elementos visuales, estos elementos gráficos que proponía esta cultura de alguna manera maquinas los taxis los músicos callejeros grupos disfrazados de cena, people events places symbols of local popular culture norteño music banda music los artistas impulsados por estar en un lugar tan feo visualmente aparentemente feo pero tan maravilloso a la vez de ¿no? cierta manera no pero qué hay que ir afuera? y luego traducen This is a law by town, Berlin's party with high quality surviving resources. Eso es tipo así. la atención de, de, de toda una comunidad de artistas donde todos empezaron a participar en en esta idea. Desde sí, que ellos produjeron Nortec, nosotros ya teníamos también algunas imágenes In our everyday content well, que pudieran funcionar a la música que ellos estaban, que estaban realizando. También hemos nuestras ideas, y igual con los visuales, pero las imágenes
0: so again you know, in what Norte does is not just the music, it's not only mixing norteño music or música de banda with techno music, but also it's creating a whole cultural movement. The The images that you see here are the result of a work of a number of artists that have collaborated with the musicians. And there have been a number of workshops, uh, talk about youth culture, that have been part of this, uh, this conversation and they are really, really now training people in high schools to use cam video cameras. And, document the city bring tijuana as a point of reference and use the urban setting as as this kind of visual revival and sound revival they're doing and so right now Norte is really the one of the most well-known ambassadors of this border culture tijuana culture globally Uh, it's interesting because Again, they're more well-known in Germany and Europe than they are in Arizona. <laughs> Which, again, it, 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 it tells you how these global dynamics work. In other words, the border is not just for local consumption.
1: Now the border is global. So okay. the border is This is Anthony Relations. <laughs> yeah. This is Anthony Gordon with Avid Artist Relations, we're here at Bonnaroo 2010 backstage, and uh, we're talking to some friends of mine, the amazing and uh, Infusible of uh, the Norte uh, Collective based out of Chihuahua, and uh, if you could introduce yourself, dudes. And this
3: is Pepe from Fusible Norte
1: Collective. So uh, a, a little disclosure here, right up Friend. We know each other. We're friends from Music World. We uh, met a couple years ago on a gig, and um, like I feel incredibly honored to know you guys. You guys are amazing, um, groundbreaking musicians in the Mexican music scene, and like, more and more all over the world. I've been seeing you guys just kill it at all these festivals in the United States. So uh, do you, what's your vibe about coming up and doing festivals here in the U.S.? Okay. I mean, it's, it's really nice. I mean, we, we have been in, in, in other festivals here
3: and it's all about like get together too many different artists, too uh, to many different types of, of music. It's really cool. I mean, I think it's like a gift for, for people, you know, can, can visit this type of festivals and have the choice to see too many bands, you know, like like uh, bigger ones, you know, and maybe see can see like today, you know, like Stevie, uh, Stevie Wonder, Wizard, or the Norton Collective, you know, heard or can go like uh, see uh, you know, mouse, or, you know, it's uh, too many options and it's really great to have like something like this and be here camping, drinking, smoking, whatever, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah. So your guys' music for people, if you haven't checked these guys out, Google them immediately, it is like the most unique, no other band in the world sounds like these guys, but you guys have a very unique style of music that combines like the most modern, forward, like futuristic kind of electronica, with traditional uh, norteño and and fusion with the and norteña and tambora is a, another kind of uh, polka from northern part of Mexico. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do Like purists in Mexico who are like Tejano or Norteño purists react to your music and how do like electronica purists react to your music? You know uh, what at at the beginning I mean they uh, Some of
3: the Norteño musicians like when when they heard it they 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 thought they I mean they uh, like it because they sound sounds funny for them sound like weird something like that but you know, before we came to banaru something really uh, to answer your question, something really uh, great happened to us because we were at the Dallas uh, uh, airport, you know, waiting for the for the plane to get here, and then we we found uh, there we found the, the Tigres del Norte, which are the most it's, they are like the best mode from uh, Mexico, the Norteña, and our, the YouTube of the Nortena music. I mean, they're like they play for. 100,000 people they're very famous in Latin America so we found them over there and they like so they, they were so excited to, to meet us and uh, we were so excited to meet them you know and then we were talking about like some future collaboration together you know they are like the godfather of Norteña. I mean so
0: and, uh, anyway so that gives you a, a sense of what what they're coming from and their success. Um, there's a recent book uh, called "Norte Rifa" by Alejandro Madrid, a scholar, that offers uh, compelling insights into the cultural production of, of Norte. And and one of the things that is interesting about uh, this is this is art book that is very interesting in terms of. Uh, a cute, like a Norte encyclopedia, I'm going to pass this around. It's by, uh, by Jose Manuel Valenzuela Arce from Colegio de la Frontera Norte. And it's really, really a nice uh, object book uh, compilation of the history of Norte with the visuals. So as, as Luis Alberto Rea, the, the famous border writer, has said, you know, the Norte Collective stands astride the U.S.-Mexico border created an art of hope and adaptation. This music represents all that is possible along the new frontier it has, fun, it has um, created in favor a movement of art and film and literature that is unique in the world. And let me show you a, a, an example of uh, what is the next one? Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> an example of this. You can probably Google this (laughs) if you like it. Now, one of the things that, and and I'm going to close with this part, one of the things here is that um, talking about another border intellectual, um, Heriberto Yepes, uh, and he has has talked about how in the border, really, what defines the border is not necessarily these ideas of hybridity or these ideas of sameness, but rather the tension and the differences that are on the border. And that's something to think <clears throat> about. Uh, we, and that's what the critique about how uh, some people have viewed uh, the border as this hybrid place. It's problematic. I mean, especially for those of you that are really, that they know the border, that reside on the border, that have that experience. There's no such a thing as hybridity. Nobody wants to come together and be one, right? In fact, differences are sometimes highlighted as a point of, for, for many reasons. And, and this is what Jepe says about Nortec as an aesthetic project. He talks about a tensorial, or a ten, tension relationship in the music, suggesting that, I'm going to quote, Nortec is a more intelligent project than the dominant discourse has suggested. Nortec has built build a sound where what is being listened to is not simply a fusion of Norteño popular music and digital technology. Nordic builds something more interesting, a tensorial sound, a sound in which the tensions provoked by cultural disencounters, or misencounters, are perceived, a sound in which one can listen the intermittencies of the very own alternatives of a multiculture, where the dynamic approximation and distances between culture is the most important thing. And so Nordic interrogates and challenges centuries notions of the border as establishes visual and musical dialogue with several (coughs) sites of operation on both sides of the border. And and I think to to me that this is very interesting in terms of thinking of Nordic as an example of how uh, what really, really is uh, important in defining the border or border issues is these differences, these tensions. How do we approach these tensions in a way in which in an, in an analytical and productive way, that <coughs> so what you do can be productive. I think that's a challenge in terms of what want I do board studies. And I can go on, but I'm not running out of time. And I would like to have a discussion or questions or comments if you are um, you want to. And also, this all this is all online. You can Google, look for all these things. Uh, there's plenty of examples, interviews. The other thing, maybe. <coughs> Can you click on one? And, and, and since I know you're going to watch al Otro Lado, um, I'm taking the liberty to suggest uh, some readings in, in that. Well, you're going to see it in El Otro Lado, and I don't want to tell you the plot, but you're going to see the interaction of immigration, music, corrido, and a number of things in a transnational way. And Juan Carlos Ramírez Piviente is a scholar that is at, at San Diego State University in, in Imperial Valley, California. He's done excellent work in terms of looking at how the corrido in general and the narcocorrido works, something that is becoming very important culturally. Uh, some people have these negative views of narcocorridos as something that's related ex- exclusively to the uh, drug trafficking culture, but at the same time, it's a popular uh, culture phenomenon that is really, really becoming transnational. And I'm very, I'm almost sure that your students or people that you are dealing with are part of this environment. So it's very important to understand how it works. What he does here, he provides like a, sort of like a background in this article you can do his work too. Um, and he recently published a book in Mexico uh, analyzing how these uh, musical expressions have emerged. Something that is, I think, relevant at this point. So I just want to suggest this as a, as a possible reading for your reference. Anyway, so questions, comments, critiques, suggestions. Again, it's so much. I just Don't took, mention. I just took one part and was trying to put something relevant and something that the students can really pay attention to, that they can relate to. I think that that's important in terms of developing ideas and curriculum. We're, we're not we're not taking away the realities of it right mm-hmm. but what I'm trying to make you think is to think about new ways to look at what you experience and what you see and what your students deal with I think that that's that's what we need to do uh again policies I can't change policy personally but I can influence and make people think about what how they experience things and so again you know it's it's
1: do you have a comment? yeah yeah so, yeah, this music's a great example of what you're talking about, non-literal borders. So we still have the literal borders, you know, people, especially poor people, who <coughs> can't cross very easily or can't recross very easily, mm-hmm. right? But this is an example of a cultural, uh, non-literal border crossing that you go you know, instantly. I mean, you mentioned that that concert was in Oaxaca. That's a good example. of you know, this. Norteño, well, Nortec, sorry, <laughs> of the Nortec now
0: spreading throughout Mexico, whereas before, yeah. parts of Mexico would have said, oh, Norteño music, no, 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 that's not our music. That, that's right, yeah. I mean, if you go to a place like Chicago, and what you're going to have is you're going to have a lot of these Norteño uh, v- variables, let's call them of, of, of music all over not only Pilsen, but all regions of, of the Midwest, which is really amazing, because what, now we're talking about this transnational um, phenomena. I mean, it's really... And we need to think about it, it's not just the people carrying the music, it's the industry, it's the global capital really creating an industry of consumers of music that buy and download music from many places. So again, you know, we can't leave the market aside, it's part of the conversation. We need to think about how globalization capital move and follow migrations, people, and so forth. So, yeah. Any your comments, questions? Uh, thank,
3: you. thank you very much.